afternoon, we're, we're going to consider Micah chapter 7, but I'd like to read first from Exodus 15. Exodus 15, the song of Moses. We'll read the first 19 verses. Uh, boys and girls, this is just after the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14. You remember the 10 plagues in those several chapters of Exodus, and then in chapter 12, the Passover. As we come into chapter 14, then they cross through the waters, and we read this in chapter 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made For your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then you can turn to Micah chapter 7. Uh, toward the end of the Old Testament, just after Jonah, before Nahum. We'll read the last three verses of Micah chapter 7. Verses 18 through 20. At the conclusion of this book, a book full of 
of judgment, then says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. That will be our main focus this afternoon, but I want to read in connection with that uh, question answer 56 of the Heidelberg Catechism on the forgiveness of sins. It's uh, page 881 in the back of your hymnal or uh, 223 in your forms and prayers. We'll read this single question answer together responsively. Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 56. It's uh, going through the Apostles' Creed and comes to that line regarding the forgiveness of sins and asks, What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into judgment. A beautiful statement. Loved one, uh, Pastor Sam Storms, in a, a recent book he wrote called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin, suggests the single overriding and most debilitating factor that threatens to undermine everything in our Christian lives and uh, enjoyment of communion with the Lord is a failure to understand, embrace, and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of sins. The reason why we struggle to enjoy God, the reason why we doubt His commitment to us, The reason we think he is repulsed by us and hesitate to seek his help, the reason we don't pray more, the reason we are restrained in our worship and witness is because we live in constant fear that he does not enjoy us, feel shame because of our sin. And so time and time again, it's good to be reminded of the promises of what God does with our sins as we look to Christ in faith. He does not keep record of them. He he does not choose to remember them. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. But this beautiful gospel summary at the end of Micah chapter 7 tells us that he does three things with our sins. He passes over them. He tramples them under his feet and he hurls them into the bottom of the sea. Three things that God does with our sins. That's what we consider this afternoon, along with one thing that God will never do, and three things that we're to do in response. First, the the three things that God does with our sins. Micah says in verse 18 of chapter 7 that God pardons iniquity 
You could say that's sort of his theme statement in this little section. Then he gives us three images, three metaphors to describe for us what exactly that means. I'm not just telling us in plain terms you are forgiven, but God gives us throughout his word a plethora of pictures to impress upon our minds that those sins are no more. A baptism and the Lord's Supper, of course, are among those pictures. But in this passage, we're given three additional pictures. First, that God passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. Meaning instead of pouring out his righteous wrath and indignation, he does not demand the penalty that our sins deserve. And that this picture of, of passing over might remind us of Exodus chapter 12, where God's wrath would be uh, poured out and he would strike all the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, except on the houses of those where the blood of a lamb without blemish was spread. Remember, God said in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you. Even though in your sin you deserve to be judged like the Egyptians, when I see the blood of the lamb that is slain, I will pass over you and not exact the judgment that your sins deserve. That's the same kind of thing that we see here at the end of Micah. And if you were to to read through the book of Micah, it's just seven chapters. This book is filled with a, a rather sobering list of the sins of God's people. Virtually every one of, of the Ten Commandments is broken. The people worship at the high places, meaning they commit idolatry. They take God's name in vain. They demand false teachers who will preach to them of wine and strong drink, uh, telling them the, the things that they want to hear. It says that their sons dishonor their fathers and the daughters rise up against their mothers. The people devise iniquity. It says they they wait in blood and hunt each other. They oppress a man and his inheritance. They exploit women and children. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Micah goes on and says they speak lies and their tongues are deceitful. They steal by using false weights and measurements. They covet fields and houses and seize them. This is a people, as the book of Micah makes clear, who deserve for God to come and bring judgment. Micah chapter 1 says, Disaster shall come down from God to the gate of Jerusalem. So weep and wail and make yourself bald. That is, shave your head in mourning because of what your sins deserve. God has made very clear in the first six and a half chapters what their sins deserve. And yet now, after Micah 7 verse 9, where the people are called to confess their sins and turn away from them, looking to God for mercy, he says, I will pass over those sins. And not in the sense that these sins don't matter to God and he'll just look the other way at them and and just sort of wink at them. But just as in the Exodus, God's wrath will be transferred from from those on on whom uh, the wrath is deserved, will be transferred over to another. So that as God's judgment for their sins is transferred to another, God might pass over them. It was a a year-old lamb without blemish that was slain in their place in Exodus 12. 
Likewise, the sins of those who repent in Micah's day will only be forgiven on the basis of the blood sacrifice of the greater lamb to come. As we uh, catechize our our own children, one of the questions that we ask from the child's catechism is, uh, how were sinners saved before Christ came? And the answer, uh, based on the book of Hebrews, is by believing in the promised Messiah. And then it goes on to ask how uh, believers showed this faith. It says they showed it by offering sacrifices that represented Christ, the Lamb of God, who would die for sinners. Uh, No one was ever saved but by the one mediator between God and man. Which is why woven throughout the book of Micah are these little prophecies of that Savior to come. We see it in chapter 4. see it in in chapter 5. This king who would be born in Bethlehem would judge between the peoples and rule over them as a shepherd. It is by faith in this Savior to come, the same one who was promised in Genesis 3, the the same one who was promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and in 2 Samuel 7, that Davidic covenant, it is through faith in that promised Savior to come that sinners may have their sins passed over by God who will then place their sins on him. In the words of, of question and answer 56, it is because of Christ's satisfaction that God may forgive our sins. And so as Micah speaks of how God pardons iniquity, the first word picture that he provides is of passing over, just as the judgment of God passed over the houses of those who had the blood of the Lamb. In other words, if you believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you believe in the sheep who was led to the slaughter on whom that iniquity of verse, eight, uh, of, uh, verse 18 is, is laid, according to Isaiah 53, and that transgression for which he was stricken, notice Isaiah 53 picks up on the same exact language of Micah 7. If you believe in that one, that lamb who was led to the slaughter for us on whom our sins were laid, then when you find yourself burdened with guilt and shame because you've again spoken a harsh word to your children or spouse or because you have again made sinful use of your eyes and you feel guilt and you feel shame and your conscience feels dirty, message of Micah chapter 7 is remember, God will pass over your sin. He will not demand that you pay the penalty as you look to his son who has paid it for you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Micah, in asking that question, is reminding us that God is incomparably gracious. And then he reminds us yet again through a second image Uh, that of trampling our sins underfoot. You see that in verse 19 where it says, he will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. Or as as other uh, translations put that, he will tread them underfoot. This is kind of language that's used throughout the Bible to describe the defeat of one's enemies. Deuteronomy 33 says, Your enemies, Israel, will come fawning to you, and you will tread upon their backs. You will bring them to complete subjection. 
It was not uncommon in ancient times for generals after a a battle to portray a victory over their enemy by uh, placing their foot upon the neck of the the, uh, conquered opponent, the other side's general, and to then uh, drive it into the ground with their foot. It's this kind of imagery that Micah is using, personifying the great enemy of our sin and saying, God will crush it under his feet. God will take your sin and crush it under his feet. That language might remind you of of Genesis chapter 3. It's saying God will crush underneath his feet not only Satan, but our sin. Meaning it will not only be passed over, removing the penalty for our sin, but also the power of sin over us. It will be crushed. Dale Ralph Davis says there is not only a pardon, but a punch in the pardon that sets us free. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Micah is here edging us toward Romans 6, where we are no longer slaves to sin, and it doesn't have dominion over us. Dale Ralph Davis says this provides a needed antidote to the recurring Christian despair that thinks there is no hope of of changing some habit or of ceasing some practice or of reversing some pattern of sinful response. In his compassion, God subdues our iniquities under his feet. Meaning sin's power to condemn and to control has been reduced to the dust. And so there is no chance of of your sin rising up on the day of judgment to indict you. Its power to condemn is reduced to the dust. And also its power to control. Sin no longer has dominion over you. It, It no longer has the power to steal your joy or make you question God's love. He is asking you to envision Christ taking your sin and stomping it under his feet into nothingness so that it cannot separate you from his love. That's the second picture that Micah gives us of what God does with our sin. He stomps it into the dust. And then third, I think most amazing of all, he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. We see that at the end of verse 20. This is why we read Exodus chapter 15. If you still have it there, you can, you can turn there if you'd like, as uh, Micah seems to be picking up here on that same song of Moses. Uh, you remember just after the Passover, when, when Israel fled from Egypt and God caused the waters of the Red Sea to separate and then crash down on Pharaoh and his army, and Moses then celebrates in what we read in Exodus 15 in language that sounds an awful lot like Micah 7. Verse 1 says, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 4, Pharaoh's army and its chariots he has cast into the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom as a stone. Verse 10, um, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. Verse 19, the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea and God brought the waters upon them. Micah is picking up on this imagery, picking up on this language when he says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
And the way that Micah 7 verse 18 echoes Exodus 15 11, who is a God like you, only confirms it. That Micah is personifying the sins of God's people, saying God will do to your sins what he did to Pharaoh and his army. He will cast them into the sea. He will take your sin and he will tread it underfoot as his conquered enemy and then cast it into the sea, never again to rise. I said this morning, Pharaoh and Egypt become a, a type, a shadow of the greater salvation to come. The greater salvation from our sin. Which is why verse 19 says he will again have compassion on us because what God here does with the sins of his people follows a pattern of what he has done before, crushing their enemy and casting it into the sea. I think it was um, Corey Tenboom who said, It's as if he then places a a sign over the waters that says, no fishing allowed. He takes your sin, and just as he hurled Pharaoh's chariots into the waters, never again to haunt God's people, he takes your sin, and he casts it out of his sight, as we we sang from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, or, or to use the language of Micah 7, he casts it into the bottom of the sea, that is the promise of the gospel. You will cast, Micah says, all our sins into the depths of the sea. Not just some of them, all of them. Sam Storms says the entire history of your failures and the guilt of your transgression sleeps with the fish. And you need never fear that a fisherman or deep sea diver or Satan or even your worst enemy in this life will succeed in retrieving the remains of your disobedience and making use of it to accuse you in the courtroom of heaven. The submarine has not been made that can submerge the depths of where God has cast them. The equipment has not been found and never will be that can retrieve the slightest vestige of your sin. Such is the quality of God's forgiving love. He passes over our sin, he tramples it underfoot, and he casts it into the bottom of the sea. As Micah gives us these three images, he's he's, um, asking us to picture God the judge scanning this sin-covered world And everyone who has the blood of the Lamb, everyone who trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins is is passed over by God the judge. And rather than judging them, God takes their sin, he stomps on it, and then he throws it into the Mariana Trench. This is the image that God is seeking to give his sinful people in Micah 7. He will give mercy to the children of Abraham, which we are by faith, Galatians 3 and will do so in keeping with his covenant promise from the days of old. His covenant promise from days of old, his promise to Abraham, which 2 Corinthians 1 tells us is yes and amen in Christ. Every promise that God has made is fulfilled in his son. And so Micah says, because of God's faithfulness to the promises that he has made, he will show this mercy to his people. This is the portrait of Micah 7, three things God does with your sin. Then notice, uh, Micah also singles out one thing that God will never do with our sin. Uh, Verse 18, he will not retain his anger over it. 
So just in case we missed it, in those three beautiful uh, positive images that he gives, he wants us to know that the wrath and anger that are spoken of in Micah 1 and Micah 2 and Micah 3 and Micah 6, he will not retain forever. And the reason this is so is because for those who trust in Christ, God's anger is poured out on our substitute. That's what question 56 means when it says it is satisfied. It's poured out on Christ. So often saying it in, from, uh, in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. So that instead of knowing God's anger, we might know his mercy or steadfast love at the end of verse 18, in which Micah says he delights. He doesn't delight in holding a grudge. He doesn't delight in bottling up anger over our sins, but in showing steadfast love and mercy. Same thing we sang of from Psalm 103. He will not keep his anger forever, but abounds in steadfast love. Who is a God like him? Who gets pleasure from showing mercy to sinners like us? Who gets pleasure from showing mercy to sinners like the ones of whom Micah writes? The implied answer to that question, who is a God like him? The the implied answer, beloved, is no one that there is no other God like him so rich in mercy, so full of grace that every other system of religion is built upon human achievement but ours on divine mercy which God pours out on us through Christ and delights in doing so. He does not retain his anger forever. Question 56, he does not remember any of my sins. He doesn't see me in my sin. He sees me in his son. And in these three verses, is, is, is seeking to impress that upon the hearts and minds of, God, of God's people so that we would be firmly convinced of the full and final forgiveness of sin, not living in shame, not living in fear and guilt, but living in the assurance of his pardon. That because of Christ's satisfaction, he will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, he grants me the righteousness of Christ so that I may never come into judgment. God passes over our sins. He tramples them underfoot. He casts them into the bottom of the sea and does not retain his anger forever. But he delights in mercy. These three things that God does and one thing that he will never do demand of us then a a response that we'll look at now briefly, three things that we must do in response. The first is this, you must repent of your sins. This beautiful ending to the book of Micah is only for those who have responded to the first seven chapters and confessed the way that they have sinned against God and provoked his righteous wrath. Notice that word remnant in verse 18, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage or his inheritance. God is speaking of a people within the people Israel who see their need for forgiveness and ask God for it, who turn away from their sins. Dale Ralph Davis says, not every card-carrying Judean will know this forgiveness. The word remnant is restrictive. 
There is Israel at large, and then there is remnant Israel, meaning not everyone who is reading this book or hearing it preached, even in this moment, receives this pardon. But only those who see their need of it and look to Christ. This is part of the doctrine of the invisible church within the visible church. The first thing we must do in response to Micah's declaration of this incomparably forgiving God is to repent of our sins. To acknowledge that you are a sinner and look to God for mercy. Which leads then to the second thing. Having repented of our sin, the second thing that we are to do in response to this beautiful declaration of God's grace and God's steadfast love and mercy, which he delights in pouring out, the the second thing that we're to do is to be assured of his pardon. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember my sins, any of my sins, but grants me the righteousness of Christ. Are you assured of that this afternoon? Or do you come here this afternoon wallowing in your sin? Do you come here this afternoon because of those sins which uh, you continue to struggle against all your life? Do you come here doubting God's love for you? Do you come here thinking that the sins you committed last night or last week or last year, sins that you hate, sins that you have confessed, sins that you look to Christ for forgiveness for, do you, do you think that he holds on to those? Do you think that when you fail and sin again, that God is looking down from heaven waiting to get you, thinking, I gave you a second chance, but now you've done it again in your mind? No, God says, I will remember your sins no more. They're in the bottom of the sea. Stop remembering what I have forgotten. And remind yourself each day when you wake up or or when you go to bed that God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea and crushed them underfoot. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin, but he sees the righteousness of his son. And you will never come into judgment because Christ has already come into judgment for you. Be assured, if you have looked to Christ in faith and repentance, that your sins are pardoned. And then lastly, the the third thing that we are to do in response is to join in Micah's response of praise. The three things we must do in response to what God has done for us are repent of our sins, be assured of his pardon, and join in this great doxology that we find here at the end of Micah 7, which, which is inviting us to sing, inviting us to rejoice, inviting us to say, oh, who is a God like you? Who is a savior like our triune God who takes my sins and and pardons them? He, He passes over them because of the blood of his son, the blood of the lamb that was slain, who stomps them underfoot and crushes them, stomps underfoot also Satan, the accuser, who continues to to bring those those sins to mind and throw them in my face. He crushes them and, and then he takes them and he throws them into the bottom of the sea. Even as we see that image at the end of the Bible in Revelation of the lake of fire into which our great enemy will be thrown. As he takes my sins and casts them into the bottom of the sea, he commands me not to bring them up in guilt, but to trust him when he says, I will remember them no more. 
I will not retain my anger forever, but I delight in mercy. Join in Micah's doxology, responding in gratitude and adore the God of Micah 7, the God of the forgiveness of sins. Who is a God like him? The answer is no one. And so we respond in praise. We'll pray and then we'll sing of that God in a moment. Our Father in heaven, we love you and praise you and thank you for what you have done in sending your son into the world to live the perfect life that we could not to actively obey every one of your laws, the very laws that your people in the book of Micah failed to, the very uh, laws that we daily uh, fail to, uh, to follow, both thought and word and deed. We thank you for sending him into the world to perfectly keep your law, to then uh, die the death that we should have for our disobedience to it, and to then rise again in triumph, stomping our sins into the dust and casting them into the bottom of the sea that you remember uh, no more. Even as we heard this morning from Job 14, that you take those sins and you put them in, in a bag and you throw it away, never again to be reopened. Lord, give each one here grace to believe that, to confess their sins, and to look to your Son, the one who has come to give us life, the one who has come to, to bear your wrath for us. And then, Lord, having done that, to hear your gracious pronouncement of pardon, I remember your sins no more. Free us from guilt and Shame, help us to enjoy the full and final forgiveness that is purchased for us on the cross. We pray that you would would drive this gospel truth into the heart of both the the, the person who is uh, overly sensitive and uh, introspective and continues to look at their sin and feel guilt and shame and so distance themselves uh, from you because of their sin, feeling, feeling shame but that you would also drive this gospel truth into the heart of the legalist who, who is not yet convinced of the full and final forgiveness of sin and so thinks that there's something more we need to do and that you would drive this gospel truth also, Lord, into the heart of the, the antinomian, the, the person who thinks that uh, because of what you've done, I can therefore live however I want. No, Lord, help us to respond with the kind of gratitude that we see in Micah 7, confessing who is a God like you and praising you, not only now with our tongues, but with our lives all throughout the week. Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy this full and final forgiveness purchased for us on the cross of Christ and that we would then join in lives and songs of gratitude with the prophet Micah and with the church throughout the ages and throughout the world, rejoicing in all that you have done for us by grace.